Welcome to the global edition of our Net Group Investments quarterly highlights, where we profile some of the interesting takeouts from our recent fund manager workshops with our global best of breed managers. To hear the full fund manager presentations or for more information about our funds, visit the Net Group Investments website or access more of our content via LinkedIn, YouTube, and podcast channels. In this episode, we discuss the different components of global inflation and why it is so sticky. A global equity manager takes us through megatrends which are shaping the global equity universe. We examine the outlook of the healthcare sector and its role within a global REIT portfolio. We then discuss the health of the financial sector, specifically banks given the global banking crisis. We also discuss some of the geopolitical risks of investing in emerging markets. And finally, we outline why India is a rising giant amongst emerging markets. Global inflation has been stickier than expected. Paul Simons breaks down the components of inflation and gives us an outlook of inflation going forward. This is a little detail on inflation in the US. So three series here, um, non-durables, durables and services inflation. So the three main categories of the inflation basket. The optimists point to durables and non-durables inflation falling sharply. Durables inflation is probably less important to most households. Uh, You can put off the purchase of most durables for periods and and when your household finances are are better. Non-durables clearly are are non-discretionary. But what we need to look at on here is services, which are 60% of the inflation basket and a significant part of most developed economies. This is still on the rise. It's not it's not falling, and that's partly because of labour shortages and cost pressures becoming embedded into expectations about um, future wage rises. In the UK, we're seeing a series of strikes across the public and private sector as labour flexes its muscles and not unreasonably wants to preserve their real terms earnings potential. So this is a US significant part of the economy pressure is still there. Um, So even if energy prices adjust and we get some of the the more extreme pressures over the last year dealt with, there's no side in my mind that inflation is is totally beaten yet. Anthony Burgess highlights current global mega trends which he sees playing out in global equities. What we think of the mega trends, so I touched on some of these already. And you'll have heard us talk about some of these over the past. So I mentioned accountable care, you know, the idea of actually being rewarded by the value that you add going to become increasingly important. Uh, The rise in gene therapy and and biologics, a number of businesses aligned to, to that theme travel I've talked about, energy transition and decarbonising, things like the roads. Uh, Vonchi, for example, which is uh, one-third toll roads, is um, spending uh, uh, considerable sums on making their highways uh, um, e-vehicle friendly by putting in power uh, points, uh, which uh, will stand them in good stead. They also have an energy business, which is uh, moving increasingly to renewable uh, energies. Uh, Canadian Pacific that we've just mentioned, four times more energy efficient than trucks. That merger that they've done will take 65,000 trucks off the road onto rails, which obviously helps not only their carbon footprint, their customers, but uh, uh, it will help Canadian Pacific's uh, different scope uh, uh, carbon disclosures. 
Uh, and then you've got the digital revolution that we've uh, touched on. So the last one is sort of premiumization and brand development. And we've had Unilever in the fund for a while. Uh, but we've now added uh, Diageo. That was the purchase. No, no sales last quarter, but we have added Diageo. The increasing global shift towards renewable energy has been a challenge for some energy stocks. We asked Paul Simons to share his views on energy stocks and how they feature in his portfolio. We get often asked about energy stocks in our portfolios, and we still have a number uh, in various countries that we in invest in. It's very clear to all of us that the longer term pressure or longer term requirement is for those companies to shift what they do and for us to rely less on, on fossil fuels. That's not in doubt, uh, but that is a long term process. Everybody is still using fossil fuels today, even the most environmentally conscious, uh, well-meaning and wealthy consumers who have been able to shift the type of vehicle they drive or uh, how they heat their house still rely to a certain extent on some fossil fuels. And if we don't have companies continuing to invest in their provision, then the supply of those fuels is going to become concentrated and most likely concentrated in parts of the world which care much less about the environment. And we've seen some of the consequences of energy sources being concentrated in unpredictable parts of the world over the last year or so. On top of that, the actual type of fossil fuel is important. No one's really looking for coal anymore. We know where it is. In many cases, it's not that difficult to, to produce it. And what we unfortunately saw over the last year or so is coal being used more uh, when other uh, lower carbon intensity forms of fossil fuels were in short supply. And we need that not to happen for us to be able to achieve uh, the, the climate targets that need, need to be met. So some degree of stability in prices for oil and gas, perversely perhaps, are important in gradually weaning the global economy off, off fossil fuels altogether, because if, if they become unpredictable um, and unaffordable for the many countries which are lower down the income scale, then they will have no choice but to use coal, and, and that's unhelpful. And I guess then uh, the only other point I'd make is that uh, many of these companies have the skills to make the energy transition and we need them to make that energy transition. Um, the production, storage, transportation of some form of energy source is their core competency. And so what we need to happen is for the experts in that field to help develop new energy sources and uh, connect uh, users to them. So as holders of a number of energy stocks, we will have been and will continue to be discussing with them their investments in things like hydrogen, uh, in renewables um, and in infrastructure networks to, to allow the transition to take place. But we don't think selling out of them uh, en masse is, is the solution. It's on a case-by-case -case basis and obviously taking into account valuation and how individual companies are, are performing. But uh, uh, energy stocks, we think, are still um, a valid and important part of the portfolio and of the solution. Robert Promesal was overweight healthcare REITs sector in Q1. He highlights how this sector has contributed to his global property portfolio. He also shares his thoughts on this sector for the rest of the year. The portfolio is overweight healthcare, uh, really driven by a, a number of factors. One, uh, very strong um, 
view on, on growth in senior housing. Uh, senior housing suffered tremendous fall off in, uh, in operations during the pandemic as occupancy for senior housing plummeted over uh, 1,300 basis points in 12 months through the beginning of through early 2021. And that's really because due to the pandemic, before there was a vaccine, uh, most of the senior housing communities unfortunately had to stop leasing to new residents as a way to mitigate the spread of, of the virus. And so they suffered an unprecedented fall in occupancy. And they're now in the midst of what will probably be a four-year occupancy rebuild. It's happening at roughly 75 to 100 basis points of occupancy occupancy gain a quarter. And so that's steady, visible growth that we think is going to drive revenues. Uh, additionally, there's very strong demand for senior housing. Some of it's pent up, but really uh, there's just strong demographic need for senior housing. In the U.S., we have the over 80 age cohort that's expected to grow as baby boomers age into it at over four and a half percent a year for really almost the next decade. Uh, and so you have very strong demand fueling uh, both growth in occupancy and growth in rate. And then finally, when we look at profitability of senior housing, we expect that to improve because as we continue to move further away from the pandemic, we start to see labor markets normalize and some of the super high labor costs that were being borne during the pandemic through the use of temporary agency labor, which was priced at three to four times what normal salaried employees would be, that's going away. We actually um, have been touring various senior housing communities uh, in, in different markets, and several of them expect to have virtually no use of agency labor by the end of the year. And so that will be really quite constructive. As a result, we expect operating margin expansion for senior housing and, and, and same store NOI growth to be in excess of 20% for that sector uh, over the next really 2023 and into 2024. Our top pick in that group is Well Tower. It's traded in New York. Uh, the ticker is W-E-L-L. It's one of the largest owners of senior housing in the U.S. Over two-thirds of its portfolio is uh, related to senior housing, and the company should see strong growth as a result of that. The other sector in healthcare that is uh, really quite attractive to us right now is medical office sector. Um, the reason we like medical office is, is, the, is the stability of its operations, uh, and frankly, relatively strong growth forward. So, the reason why growth, why why the operations are so strong, is there's there's good demand for uh, medical services to be moved, shifted from high cost acute care facilities like hospitals to more community uh, medical service locations. Um, they're lower cost and and they're really well suited for non acute care uh, uh, procedures and practices. Whether you're going to a doctor's visit, having uh, a regular recurring type of medical procedure. Um, and so we've seen occupancy lift into the into the low 90s for medical office uh, facilities. We don't see a lot of uh, competitive construction, and we've actually seen the internal growth for these companies edge up from kind of two to two and a half percent to above three percent, and expected to be there for the next couple of years. So, uh, really, what drives our interest in um, in healthcare uh, is is the demographic necessity of that asset class. The collapse of three U.S. banks, Silvergate, SVB, and Signature Bank has brought a lot of strain on the global financial sector, especially banks. 
Stephen Romek shares his views on the sector and how he has positioned it in his multi-asset portfolio. Uh, the European banks we've we've avoided for for the longest time. They, they, they've never adequately recapitalized post the financial crisis of 2008-9. And they've since suffered terribly from you know, a long run of negative rates, weak economic growth, and from shooting themselves in the foot uh, with, with poor investment bank performance. And to the benefit of, of the U.S. financial system, the U.S. has better regulation, you know, stronger regulation, total regulation than, than Europe does. And the, that leaves the European banks, in, in, for the most part, carrying far less capital than its U.S. peers. And in addition, the European bank scale relative to the local economies has also generally led them to riskier assets than their U.S. counterparts. But with that said, and we recognize any bank can fail. If, for example, J.P. Morgan generally regarded, you know, as the as the best managed, strongest, you know, bank in in the world had, you know, of of, of any size had forty percent deposit outflows in forty eight hours. You know, it too would would have serious serious problems, and uh, would be would be on the precipice. Uh, the ultimate protection for our portfolio in global effects is that the total position sizing in financials is relatively small. So it's it's just a part of a diversified portfolio. Unfortunately, across the board, banks have done relatively well over the years. And, you know, fortunately, we did not own, you know, Credit Suisse. Political risk has been a deterrent for most investors to allocate money towards emerging markets. Brian Coffey, an emerging markets portfolio manager, highlights how this risk has been elevated over the short term and how geopolitics in emerging markets will likely play out this year. It's a key part of our investment process, analyzing the political backdrop for all of the countries that we cover. Uh, the question is a good one, politics but more particularly geopolitics in China seems to be a major concern for uh, investors, including ourselves. I would say, and this won't be anything startlingly new uh, to to the audience, that uh, the geopolitics has taken a turn for the worse, and it's not solely the fault of China. It seems as though the US is reasonably aggressive towards China and moving into uh, an election year in the US, that's unlikely um, to soften. Uh, Both sides will want to be seen to be standing up to China. Hopefully we can see some de-escalation of tensions over Taiwan. I think both sides would like to do that. Um, Although, as I say, the US political uh, backdrop doesn't help that at the moment. The Ukraine and potential for Chinese involvement uh, in that situation. Uh, They've already put themselves forward as potentially uh, peacemakers, but I don't think that's been taken terribly seriously uh, by the West and by the Ukraine, as they seem to be too closely aligned to Russia. So I think politics will continue to cloud uh, investing in China, but we think we're probably at or close to an adhere, and we're hoping that things will improve. I think both the US and China will be cognizant of relatively fragile economies, and that tends to be when the risk rhetoric can calm down a little bit. In the case of Brazil, uh, politics has been pretty grim uh, since the re-election of President Lula. His, uh, 
appointments to the cabinet have been well reasonably market unfriendly certainly not what the market would like to see and the pro policy proposals so far haven't inspired confidence but again i think here we may be at an adhere in terms of uh, politics i think that things can improve from here simply by not getting any worse i think that president lula has demonstrated in the past that he is a very pragmatic a politician when push comes to shove. The uh, Senate and the uh, uh, lower house in Brazil is definitely uh, has a tendency towards the centre, centre-right, so that will uh, force some policy moderation, I think. But, you know, even without things improving dramatically in Brazil, I think we're close to a point where we can say the politics is no longer as negative as it was. So people had been hoping for a pragmatic President Lula from the opening. I think we're likely to see that come to the fore as we move forward from here. India has been a front runner among emerging markets. It has demonstrated resilience despite a challenging external environment. Brian Coffey highlights why he is positive on this country. Why do we like India so much in the long term? Well, I guess the key reason is the demographics. So you've got a huge population and you've got a population that's exactly the shape we would like to see. So the nice pyramid shape with, with youth moving up through the productive parts of the demographic uh, chart. We've got an economy that is friendly towards business, I would say, rather than trying to constrain. and. What you'll probably gather from the way I'm voicing this, this is, I would say, in direct contrast uh, to China at present. So we've got a huge potential domestic market of 1.4 billion population, we're told, although I don't know how anyone can measure it accurately, but we're told that last quarter the population of India surpassed that of China. It's at a lower stage of development, but it's got a much better runway. The respect for property rights and the rule of law, I think, are more easily uh, identifiable in India than in any of the other larger uh, emerging markets. And therefore, that's probably the key reason why you want to be uh, positive about it. So in addition to that, we're seeing the tension between the US and China forcing companies to consider uh, sources of production outside of China. So India is going to be a beneficiary of that. There's lots of the newer industrializing uh, uh, economies in Asia will benefit it, will benefit from that. But I think India is going to be a key beneficiary. And Prime Minister Modi uh, is doing a reasonably uh, good job in terms of steering uh, the country and the economy and we don't expect any dramatic change there. So that's, for us, the key reasons to be excited about India in the long term. Rule of law, favourable demographics, and a backdrop that could see significant FDI uh, and, and uh, uh, economic growth over the next few years, and nothing major in, that we can see at present to throw that off kilter. William Patterson has been trimming down on a number of companies in the quarter, given the volatile markets. He highlights some of these companies. The railroad companies in North America have done very well over the last 10, 15 plus years, largely on a function of being more efficient, being very 
uh, sort of highly highly focused on the way they they do the logistics and cutting out costs. And it appears that a lot of these companies are now struggling with higher inflation. In particular, the effect is having on the business in terms of higher wage costs and all the management language suggests it's transitory. Uh, well, they'd like to believe it's transitory. Our work suggests that this is getting sort of embedded in the in the business. And because they've been run so efficiently now for quite a long time, we're not sure there are many other costs to be cut out. The bottom line is that those companies and a bit like, um, so the couple of stocks we sold during the quarter were Norfolk Southern and CSX Corp. They are stocks which we previously felt would keep surprising and analysts would get caught out and their growth characteristics would be sort of worthy on a 12-month view, but they are now being downgraded and, and the, we can't see how they fit the stock characteristics we look in the portfolio. So those have been sold. Another area that has been of interest in the last year or two have been defence companies. Um, defence companies are are strong businesses, as many of you will know, they have very, most of them have very long contracts with governments. Uh, so they're sort of very protected in terms of the profile of that business. Uh, most of those contracts are uh, inflation linked to a degree. Um, and so they have had a very positive outlook for the last year or two, uh, not least because of the various things going on around the world and the, the invasion in Ukraine from Russia has highlighted the attraction of some of these companies. The trouble is in, in the last six to nine months, a number of these companies have started to be downgraded. And we think it's we think it's because governments, for all their talk about more defence spending um, and the sort of the general public mood, which has shifted the expectation of greater defence spending, is being uh, sort of drawn out slowly by governments who are very pushed for cash, as we all know, to spend on a whole range of things. And so government contracts for defence spending are not growing as fast as people thought. So the, the, the bottom line for a number of these companies is that they are being downgraded at a time when people expected them to be upgraded. So for, for us, that is a problem. So suddenly their growth does not look as attractive as we expected. So we sold a number of companies this quarter, uh, last in, in last month, um, Northrop Grumman was one, um, L3 Harris Technologies was another. And they're good examples of stocks where you, do, you have to be realistic about looking at the most recent news and trying to work out what has changed and to make sure you don't just rely on a, a previous expectation which no longer looks realistic. Um, and then in a completely different area, a couple of stocks we sold would be S&P Global and NASDAQ, the um, technology index business. And they're, they're not, again, interesting examples. They're very inherently very strong businesses. They have incredibly strong franchises. Um, you know, no one can really replicate what they do, but they've done incredibly well over the past 10 years or so as they've increased revenues and they've pushed up margins and uh, people have learned to understand why they are such good businesses. So the ratings of those companies have also gone up a lot, which means the share prices have um, kept going up and been fantastic for those people who have been smart enough or lucky enough to have held those stocks. Um, but both of those stories, uh, for slightly different reasons, have broken down in the last year. S&P Global relies quite a lot on bond issuance, and bond issuance has been um, significantly lower over the last 12 to 18 months. A world of higher interest rates has made life very difficult for them. And the management language is sort of is uh, optimistic and positive, but the reality is they keep slightly disappointing and missing, and management have to lower their expectations. So if you take a sort of step back and look at those that company, um, you are forced, forced to conclude that it's not growing as we expected in the past or certainly a year ago uh, and, and investors expectations are still very high so there's a gap we would say between investors expectations and where the reality is today uh, so we've sold s p global 
You can access more information about all the fund manager workshops at netgroupinvestments.com, YouTube, or through our podcast channels on all major platforms. This has been your Net Group Investments quarterly briefing. Make sure to check back at the end of July for our next edition.